the king, my king, now and forever. Who's your king? Might sound like a funny question to you because we don't have kings, at least in this country. There are some that do. Just had a new one coronated over in the United Kingdom. And we don't actually like kings very much in this country. The whole country started getting out from under old King George, remember? And so kings can be weird to us, but I just want you to know that you have a king. A king is just what you're living for or who you're living for. A king is who or what is calling the shots in your life, what you really submit to. Everybody has one. Don't, don't buy into this idea that some people submit and others don't, or some people worship and others don't, and, or some people are living for something bigger than themselves and others don't. No, everybody is living for something. See, God created us to worship, and everybody's going to worship. It's not just those religious people that worship. It's people who proudly declare that they're not religious, they're worshiping too. Everybody's giving themselves to something that they think will give their lives meaning based on their beliefs. So what do you believe? You see, because what you believe will lead to what you live for. What you believe is what you have conviction about. And what you have conviction about ends up determining your life. So it's really important to step back and question, what do I believe? What do I believe about God? What do I believe about myself? What do I believe about other people? What do I believe about the purpose of life, the meaning of my existence? What do I believe will give me fulfillment and significance and a life that I can look back on and say that was worth living? Who your king is will determine everything. Who you believe is worth your worship and worth your life and worth your devotion will determine everything about your life. So who's your king? Who do you answer to? Our goal this week is to step back and learn from the book of Daniel, the life of Daniel that we've been seeing beautifully and creatively illustrated and given to us in this story of these people trying to live in a foreign land. It may seem irrelevant to you, but it's completely relevant as I hope we'll see. So what are you living for? What do you really give your life to? What's giving your life meaning? Unless you give your life, unless you submit your life, unless you live for the only true king who's your creator, who knows you best and loves you and wants what's best for you and who alone can provide what's best for you, unless he's the one you're living for, your life, his word tells us, will end up in meaninglessness, vanity, emptiness, and not only that, but judgment, when you stand before your creator to answer how you live the life he gave you, the gifts he gave you, the opportunities he gave you, judgment awaits, emptiness awaits those who serve other kings besides the true king. And so our goal this week is to step back and think about what we actually believe. Not even just what we say we believe, but what we actually believe, and very often you don't really know what you believe until you suffer. 
You don't really know what your deepest convictions are until they are tested. And if you're a Christian, if you decide to become a Christian this week, to bow the knee to Jesus, to turn from your sin and trust him, you will find that increasingly in our society, in this country at least, there is increasing pressure that's pushing us away from serving and following and trusting the true king and living with conviction, living with character that comes from conviction and living with the confidence to follow him no matter what. You'll never really know what you believe until that belief is tested through suffering, through challenge, through oppression even, and even persecution. And so we really want to find out what we're made of this week. We want to find out who it is we actually believe. And we're all in process learning and growing who it is we are and what our lives are for and what our creator made us for. So who do you live for? We will find that unless you find your life, your joy, your satisfaction in Christ, who is the creator who came to us to save us from ourselves and our sin and from this world that's increasingly hostile to God, unless you live for him, your life will add up to absolutely nothing of lasting value or importance. Well, as Sarah said... I've been teaching theology as a theology professor at Biola University for 24 years now, and I taught at Wheaton College before that for several years. I've been a pastor uh, here in La Mirada, down in La Mirada for about that long, where I love the people who are part of my church. I love that churches, as you have come this week, have come to Hume to learn together. I'm a pastor of a dear flock that I dearly love, but even more important of that than that, Foundationally, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I did not come from a healthy family. I came from a very, very broken family. But my mother sat my brother and me on her lap and read a children's Bible to us since my youngest days. And at some point very early in my life, I came to realize that I desperately needed a Savior and that Jesus was that Savior. And he has defined my life ever since. And so first and foremost, and by far most importantly, I am someone who's trusted Jesus, and he's everything to me. I just want you to know that. Second, I am the husband of Donna. We have a photograph of my family, I believe. That's my family I get to live with. My wife of 34 amazing years. She's actually sitting in the back. Donna, would you stand up so they can see how beautiful and tall you are? Yeah. <laughs> That's my wife, Donna, of 34 years. My wife is an incredible gift from God. She is the most consistent daily provision of God's grace and kindness to me in an amazing way. She's brilliant. She's funny. She's creative. She's compassionate. She's kind. She's good. She's tenderhearted. She's an amazing woman. I'm deeply grateful for my incredible wife. Love her dearly. We have four kids, as you can see. Our oldest, Caroline, is down here. She worked in Wagon Train, or Soda Pop, maybe some of you know her as. Uh, she worked in Wagon Train for years. She is a natural-born leader, and it just exudes from her. We have my daughter, Paige, over here, who is incredibly diligent and hardworking. 
We have my son Sam, who is working full-time here this summer in grounds, and he is a very tender-hearted boy. He tries to look tough, but if he sees a dog even limping, he might tear up. He's just a beautiful kid. Love him. And my son Isaac's actually back here, too. Stand up, I. There's my boy Isaac. Isaac is life of the party. He's never met a stranger. He lights up a room. He's full of joy, and we're deeply grateful for him. So as I come before you preaching the word this week, I come as a disciple of Jesus, a father and a husband trying to work out my submission to the great king, Jesus, in my life. Please know I'm in this with you. It's been so good for me to dive into the book of Daniel and learn what we're going to be talking about this week because I want to be more faithful. I want to walk with Jesus more resiliently in a, in a culture that's increasingly opposed to what it means to be a Christian. You know, I heard somebody say that when I was a kid, being a good Christian could get you a job. Somebody heard, yeah, he's a good Christian man. They could get you a job. These days, it's been amazing how quickly it's changed. Being a good Christian now could cost you your job. Things have changed so rapidly in my lifetime. In my lifetime, in, in, in this culture, it was generally seen as a very positive and good thing to be a Christian. It meant, meant you were honest and had integrity and you could be dependent upon to do what you said you would do. And, and that were, there were all these, these virtues that you possessed. And even if people didn't agree that Jesus was the Savior of the world, they wanted Christians working for him, but that has changed really rapidly. It's still true sometimes, but increasingly we're seeing opposition to what it means to be a Christian. And so we want to help you who are Christians this week to stand more faithfully in an increasingly hostile culture. I believe that you all will see a level of opposition and persecution to your Christian faith than I will have ever seen in my lifetime. I'll be dead and gone, and you will be facing persecution that, that I've never seen anything remotely like. And we want to help you get ready for that. And, and if you're not a Christian right now, and I realize and I love the fact that people come here knowing that they are not trusting Jesus as their king. And I'm so glad you're here. I'm thrilled that you're here, but I want to plead with you to consider what we're saying this week. And whether or not it might actually be the answers, deep down you know you desperately need. And that answers Jesus. And so we're going to consider the story of Daniel. So if you have a Bible, if you don't, there are ones available in the back. Just raise your hand or run back there and grab one. And we're we're just going to look at the first two verses actually and set the stage to understand the book of Daniel. And so... In the, in the book of Daniel, it's one of the minor prophets it's in the Old Testament, and um, I'm not sure where to tell you where to go. It, it's, it's right here, right there. Um, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. If you have digital options, if that's not the Bible you have, the English Standard Version is what I'll be writing, reading out of this week. But I'm just, I just want to read the first two verses to set the stage of this incredibly helpful story. Let me pray. Lord, help us now as we go to your word. It's your word, and we're yours. And so we pray that the spirit that inspired this word will illumine our minds and transform our hearts through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Listen to these first two verses of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So, we've got to set the stage here. We've got the nation of Israel. And what's important to know about the nation of Israel is that for a very long period of time, God focused his relationship with humanity and his work in human history on this nation of Israel. That's why they're called the chosen people, because in what we call the Old Covenant that you find primarily in the Old Testament, we see this nation as a way of relating to humans that God will then bring to the whole world. He focuses for a time. And at this point in the history of the nation of Israel, it had been divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And so this focuses on Judah, which was the more primarily faithful section of the two kingdoms that now existed within the nation. And so the, the head of the, the Judah section of the nation now is this King Jehoiakim of Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar is a historical figure. You need to know how historically accurate the Bible is. People don't believe the Bible. Keep getting proven wrong by history, by archaeology, by facts. Nebuchadnezzar was arguably one of the top 10 or 15 most powerful and influential leaders in human history. And here, the nation of Israel is part of the Babylonian Empire. You've heard the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the eight great wonders of the ancient world, right? This amazingly powerful kingdom, at this time, the most powerful. And therefore, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful leader in this world. And so we find that the nation of Israel, Judah in particular has been sent into exile. And this is a very important word. We'll, we'll, we'll use this word all week. The word exile simply means, and I think we have a slide of this, it simply means a person or a people who are expelled from home or country by an authority in a foreign land. So it means someone who's not home. They may be on their way out of their home. They may be planted in a foreign culture in a foreign land. They, they may be on their way back home, which is how you find the nation of Israel often. But this idea of being in exile is one we need to understand well. Because if you're a Christian or if you become a Christian, you need to realize that what you will find yourself is, is in exile. We see the nation of Israel here not home. And even though God made this world, we'll come to realize that this world has for a very long time not been under the reign of its creator, but the reign of the demonic, the, the reign of satanic, that Satan is the king of this world, and Jesus is in the process of taking back his world. So when you read the Bible and you see Jesus do a miracle... When you see Jesus cast out a demon or you see Jesus heal the sick, when you see Jesus overcome 
natural forces that are going to kill people, like the storm about to capsize the boat of his friends. You see Jesus saying, this world's mine and I'm taking it back. And so realize that, that we're part of this kingdom now. We're part of this, this world that even though it belongs to God, currently still awaits a future takeover by the king of kings. And he's coming and he's on the move. And those who are his become part of that movement as he takes back his world. That's what an exile is. And so Daniel is this section of human history, salvation history, that we call exilic history. Right? Now you're tracking with me, right? If, if exile is not being home for the people of God, exilic history is this period of human history for Israel between 587 and 539 where they are not, not at home. They're in Babylon, in the Babylonian kingdom. It started with, as we'll talk about tonight, a takeover of a select few, the key leaders in that culture into Babylonian culture to enculturate and indoctrinate them into Babylonian thinking. But then it eventually became, in 587, a complete takeover where Nebuchadnezzar came and he just leveled the city, destroyed the temple. And so we've, we've got this takeover that leads to these exilic books of the Bible, particularly Ezekiel, Daniel, Esther, and several Psalms, that focus on this exile. And it's a hard situation. Now, realize, to leave your culture, is anyone living in the United States, but you, you started off grow, growing up in a different culture? Anybody here do that? Yeah, where? Start in Japan now. Wow, there are some real differences between Japanese culture. and it is, Yeah, it's amazing. I have some dear friends who grew up in Japan too. And man, so different. I'm sure, when did you move here? No, no, United States. Yeah, so you, you had absorbed so much of Japanese culture by then. Somebody over here, too. Where? Africa, where? Where? Oh, South Africa. Okay, yeah, wow. Some real differences there. And when did you move? Oh, that, oh my. How old are you? Quite, quite a shift going on in your thinking, trying to understand this culture relative to, yeah, amazing when you move from one culture to another. I've lived in the United States my whole life, but I moved halfway through my junior year of high school in the same state, but a really different culture than the one I grew up in. So I grew up in a factory town in Ansonia, Connecticut, where football is the religion of that town. Like when a baby's born in Ansonia, Connecticut, and it's a boy, the parents will bring a little blue football and put it in the crib with the baby, hoping that one day he'll grow up to be an Ansonia big blue charger. I mean, that's how, it's the religion of the town. And it's a factory town, and it's gritty. It's about a third African-American, about a third Eastern European, and about a third Italian. Pretty good combination for football, if you know anything about football. But, but we've got to get some Samoans in there, but we don't have any yet much out in the East Coast. But, but, um, but it, so it's a factory town, poor, low socioeconomic status. When you got those people groups, you got amazing food from Italy, Eastern Europe, and African-American. Bring that amazing soul food in there. My dad actually owned 
a, a, a place that sold great food where most of the African Americans in my town lived. That's, that's where I hung out mostly. And so really, really uh, tough culture, um, economically depressed culture, so much a very expressive culture. You don't have to wonder what people are thinking, you know. And then after the third custody battle my parents had, I moved in with my dad. I put everything I had in two big green garbage bags, and I moved halfway through my junior year of high school to Essex, Connecticut, on the east side of the river. Now, it's strange. Connecticut's a puny little state, but there's an amazing cultural difference between the west side of the river and the east side of the river that goes right down the middle of the state. West side of the river, where I'm from, is very influenced by New York, even the sports you like the sports teams you like are New York teams. You go to the east side of the river, and it's what you tend to think of in New England and Connecticut. Like, I showed up the first day of school wearing what all the guys in my high school wore jeans, an untucked flannel shirt, untied Timberland work boots. You know that guy? You know, a baseball hat backwards, and you just showed up. There were guys in, in Essex, Connecticut who had corduroy pants that were blue and green and had whales on them. Kids grew up sailing in that town. That's where my wife was. She, she grew up in that town. Where kids grow up sailing, sailing, really wealthy, really preppy. It, it couldn't have been more. I mean, the food was different. I mean, it, everybody was white except for two kids in the high school who were black, and they were Haitian, and they hadn't come, and it was amazing what a different culture it was and how I had to adapt. Now, my town, we've had two losing football seasons in the past 134 years. That's how long our football team has been playing football games. This, this school I moved to, they hadn't had a winning season Ever. That was really different. And I came in with a, a, a kind of purple satin state championship football jacket on that I wore with my name and number on it. Quite late 70s, early 80s looking. And one of the football players on the team I was now on, Mike Sampson, that was his name, he came up to me and he hits me on the chest and he says, we don't like you wearing that jacket around here. And I said, well, then we're going to have to win a state championship for ourselves then so we can wear our own. He was like, all right, all right. And he walked away. <laughs> so culture shock. If you can imagine culture shock in a little state, right? But it was. Imagine moving out of Jerusalem, the city of God, God's city. It's not just cultural differences with different food and different customs, and different language, and different ways of dress, the, the kinds of things that you have to get used to, different ways of relating, and different ways of running your family, and different ways of doing business, and, and, and different emphases, and just the way you interact with people. It can be bewildering to just move from South Africa, or even within a state to a different culture. Imagine being a Jew. Living in Jerusalem, you see, that's not just cultural differences. 
Those are differences of the God you worship and how you worship him. Because Jerusalem and the city of Zion and the, the nation of Israel, the, the Judeans, they were committed to worship that was all about the place of worship, the temple, right? Where you offered sacrifice and you were able to interact with God. The, the city of God where the Messiah was going to come, the Savior of the world was going to come to Jerusalem. And he was going to bring reconciliation with God. And he was going to bring his kingdom to earth. And now you're not even there. And that city where your promises rested was destroyed. Raised to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Now what? No doubt you're reeling with all kinds of questions and doubts and struggles and saying, I thought... God made all these promises located in this place, and now it's all gone, and we're in this other place. I know what I'll do. I'll just blend in. I'll just become part of these people. I'll, I'll, like Judith. You know, let's, let's just adapt. Let's act like burning tires smells like apple pie. Let's act like trash is really cool stuff. Let's adapt their culture. Let, let's adapt their way of thinking, their way of living, and just blend in and avoid the controversy that otherwise could be caused. You know, you've got other people who say, you know, we're just going to go live off by ourselves. Isolation, right? So you, you've got adaptation, you, you've got assimilation, and you've got isolation, and you've got, you've got the other people who say, no, we're going to cooperate but we're not going to conform. We're going to be men and women of conviction in a foreign land. That's who we're going to be. And, and so Daniel, in, in this story, goes to this foreign land, to Babylon, after he besieges it. And then verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. Now, now, what's interesting about the land of Shinar, this, this place, that's where the Tower of Babel was built. Remember that Old Testament story in Genesis where the people were going to make this amazing building, and in their hearts they were challenging God with their own authority. And so they, they, they mirror this past rebellion saying, no, we're in charge, not God. And so now this is where the people are again. And, and listen to Psalm 137, this psalm that laments this situation. It's a sad situation. The, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion, mocking them for their worldview. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Dear ones, that is what we're trying to learn this week. How do we sing the songs of Zion? How do we sing? How do we live? How do we declare? How do we stay faithful in the midst of a foreign land? Opposition. Now, you may be saying foreign land. I'm not in a foreign land. Well, you are if if you have the culture of Christ. If you have the culture of Christ, his customs, his arts, his social institutions, his achievements of a particular people, that's what a culture is. 
And that comes with a way of viewing everything. It comes with a way of viewing dating and food and recreation, in which video games you'll allow yourself to play and which ones you won't, and for how long you'll allow yourself to do that. It determines how you view and use your phone or don't view and use your phone. Ladies, it determines how you view men and men how you view women. It determines how you view and treat your parents and authority in your life and in how you are able to cooperate but not conform. See, because cultures want to jam you in to their mold. That's what we're going to look at tonight. The ways our culture, often imperceptibly and subtly, is trying to jam us into a mold that's conforming to the ways of another world than the one Jesus calls us to live in. And here's what I want us to realize. That the God you worship and serve determines everything. Everything. So pick the right God. Pick one that will lead you in the way of wisdom that's worthy of your life. And finally, realize why this all happens. You know, you can feel like the world's out of control. But I want you to notice three verses with the same basic phrase. Look at verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So, you know, imagine yourself. You're taken over by this foreign king, brought to this foreign land, and you're living there, and you could say, God, where are you? God, everything's out of control. God, we're away from the place we're supposed to find and worship you and have an intimate relationship with you and provide for us, and now it's all gone. Lord, where are you? But you need to notice that phrase, the Lord gives the people over into this situation. And so, look at another verse here. Verse 9, that we'll see tonight. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion. Who's running the show here? Look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature. See, God's behind the scenes here. God is sovereign. God is ruling and reigning all that is happening. Now, why did they end up here? Why is God doing this? Why in the world would God bring this kind of situation about? Discipline. He is sovereign over everything, but he's bringing discipline to his people. If you could find Jeremiah, just just, uh, go back. Past Ezekiel, back to Jeremiah 25. Listen to why the people are there. Listen. Jeremiah 25.1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. See, these are real historical events. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, here's why they're, they're in exile. From the 13th year of Josiah to the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you. But you've not listened. You've neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants and prophets, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods and serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord. 
that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar and the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, will I banish them from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. Grinding in the millstones and the light of the lamp, the whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So year after year after year, God sent his prophets and says, stop worshiping those other gods. Stop giving yourself to false gods. Follow me, the one true God. And they would not listen. And so God, because he loves them, too much to let them go into all of that false god idolatry worship disciplines them you know the new testament tells us that god disciplines us because he loves us a father who doesn't care about his children doesn't discipline his children and that's what he brings about here and i want us all to realize that god is sovereign over all of this here's a good definition of the sovereignty of god God has absolute role, rule over creation as king and total control and determination of all that happens. Look at Daniel 7. He, he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples and nations as men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. God is the king. And when things look bleak, when things look dark and bad, take heart. God's still on his throne. God's working for our good in his glory in our lives, even in the midst of our rebellion. And the sovereignty of God, A.W. Pink says, is the foundation of Christian theology, the center of gravity in the system of Christian truth, the sun around which all lesser orbs are grouped. And the sovereignty of God is what the people of God rest in when things get hard, when things get dark, when opposition mounts and persecution increases. We don't believe that God took a day off. We believe he's on his throne and we trust him in the midst of it all. And please realize that God's ultimate solution to our exile is in the exile of his son. Listen to this amazing passage in John chapter 1. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus went through exile. Although he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He left the eternal glory he had enjoyed with Father and Spirit for all of eternity past, and he becomes poor so that in him we might become rich. He leaves his home and the security of heaven and joins us, the ex exiled people, so that we could come back home. And we live in two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our God. And our prayer then when we become part of his kingdom is that it would be on earth as it is in heaven and we become the means of being that salt and light and source of hope for God's people. 
and for this world. When we recognize and meet Jesus as the only true king and follow him in faith and resilience, no matter what kind of opposition or persecution we may encounter, we will be able to say, you're the king, my king forever. That's what we're after. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be a resilient people, a people who follow you faithfully no matter what. Lord, for those who've never trusted you here this morning, I pray that you'd be working in hearts, giving them an open mind and a willingness to consider the claims of Christ and the claims of your word about who you are and who we are and what a meaningful life looks like. For those of us who have trusted you, Lord, we pray that you would help us to grow in our conviction, in our character, and the consistency of our lives. Lord, I thank you for each young man and woman here, and I pray you'd be working in each of their hearts as the Holy Spirit only is able to do uniquely and sufficiently to bring lasting change and trust in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.